Uh, tonight, I would like to speak for just a moment with you about borrowed faith, about a borrowed faith. Our uh, anchor passage tonight is in John chapter 8. We start with verse 47. It says, He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Now, have you ever bar- had someone borrow something from you? And uh, they just like, never gave it back, right? And then <laughs> you see it later, maybe like in their garage or, or something like that. You say, hey, wait, that, that looks familiar. That's, hey, that's mine. No, 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 that's not yours. I've had that forever. Well, yeah, since the last time you borrowed it from me, <laughs> uh, my initials are on it. So I mean, it's, it's mine. No, 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 that's, that's mine. That's mine. So you've got that friend that's borrowed something for so long that they actually believe it's theirs, right? I've never experienced, I've experienced that before. Sometimes we as Christians can be like that friend, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to start with asking you a question, why are you here? Why are you here? Why do you come to church here? Uh, why do you come to church in general? Um, for the younger crowd, maybe it's because your parents make you. Uh, you don't really want to come, but you don't have a choice. I didn't have a choice growing up. There was no question in my house as to whether we were going to church. If I asked if we were going to church, I was looked at like I had three hits. And I might have got a spanking as well if I asked that question. So that's just how it was in, uh, in my house growing up. For the older crowd, um, maybe it's just because you've always gone here. Uh, right? Your, uh, your parents or your grandparents went here. Uh, you were brought up this way. Going to church on Sunday uh, was just what you did. It's the Southern, conservative, uh, you know, American thing to do. So that's just what we still do, all right? So before I proceed, please understand this is not really about church in particular. We'll kind of touch on that here in just a moment. But what I want you to consider in answering this question is what is your motivation to participate in anything related to Jesus? Is it just because your parents told you to? Is it just because it's something you've always done? Uh, Or is it just like anything else where, well, if I feel like it, if I'm not too tired, uh, if I don't have other plans, if I'm in the mood, if it's not too inconvenient for me, I want you to consider, really consider, why you're here. And we'll come back to that question here at the end. So let's look at a particular situation. A few Pharisees found themselves in with Jesus. We'll be looking in John chapter 8 tonight. We won't read the entire chapter, uh, but I want to point out a few things to you in this passage. So just to kind of set the scene, I'd like to give some context so we understand what we're talking about. Jesus is teaching in the temple here. Many have gathered around, having heard of this Jesus. He's kind of had a, you know, created a reputation for himself with the miracles and the bold claims that he's made. And in this passage, uh, the Pharisees bring an adulterous woman to Jesus. Most of you are probably familiar with this part of this interaction. This is where Jesus so famously says, "Let he who is without sin cast the first stone." Uh, one of the passages most often taken out of context, by the way. But uh, after he sends the woman away to sin no more, he continues to teach in the temple. Then an unusual conversation unfolds between Jesus and the Pharisees about paternity. 
the subject of this conversation is literally, who's your dad? It reminds me of those conversations that you hear little boys have, or I remember having when I was a little boy about, you know, whose dad is better, stronger, faster? You know, my dad can beat your dad up, or no, he can't. My dad can beat your dad up. He can run faster than yours, or, you know, that kind of thing. We're comparing dads. However, one of the dads in this conversation far exceeds the other in all aspects, and we'll dig in that in just a moment. But first, let's back up a bit. Let's see where this conversation started. This is right after the interaction with the adulteress, uh, the woman caught in adultery. So we're going to start with verse 12 of John chapter 8. So then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come, came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So I want to break this down a little bit. Jesus starts by making a couple of bold claims. The first claim is that he is a light in a world full of darkness, the light in a world full of darkness. And then he claims to be the source of life. Now, the Jews understood the boldness of this claim and responded with, uh, you're just saying that, and just because you say something doesn't mean it's true. right?" And that's what, when they said, you bear witness of yourself, but your witness is not true, that's basically what they're saying there. Jesus responds by introducing the Father into the conversation. And then he takes their own law and argues against them. He says, actually, it's not just me, it's me and my Father, and that makes two if you're keeping count, and your law says the testimony of two men is true. Then this discussion of paternity picks up pace when the Jews ask, well, then where is your Father? Jesus knew where this line of questioning was going. The Jews just didn't know yet that they weren't really going to like where this was taking them. The Jews, see, had a keen interest in heritage, seeing as they had built their religion on that foundation, a foundation that God had never intended them to build it upon. Jesus continues in verse three, excuse me, verse 31 says, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is talking to primarily or even exclusively a Jewish crowd. 
They took their heritage very seriously. They were God's chosen people. They knew it, and oftentimes they flaunted it to the Gentiles around them. Their answer here was actually somewhat comical because if you recall, Israel had most definitely been in bondage before. If you remember Egypt, we talked about Babylon this morning. This was not, they were definitely in physical bondage before. Uh, They'd obviously experienced that, but here they were referring to spiritual bondage, but that really makes it a little even more comical or really sad because they had been in bondage to sin since Adam first ate of that fruit, and they just refused to acknowledge it at this point in their life. Jesus continues his response, giving them the answers to the real questions they were asking. What they were really asking Jesus was, by whose authority are you speaking? That's why they want to know who is this father that you're talking about. Are you saying what I think you're saying? And Jesus was. He was telling them that he was the son of God, the son of their God. He's saying, when you realize who I really am and decide to follow me, only then will you experience true freedom. We continue on verse 42. It says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word, you are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. This discussion continues about whose father is whose. Jesus is claiming that God... Is his father. The Jews are saying, if that were the case, we would definitely know about it. Our father's Abraham. He was chosen of God. He served God. God's his heavenly father. So therefore, God is our father. So if God's your father, we would, we would know this. But Jesus quickly sets them straight. He says, you don't know my father. If you did, you'd listen to me. He's not your father. You have a different father, the devil. How do you think the Pharisees and the Jews in this conversation responded? We continue in verse 47. It says, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. How do you think the Jews are feeling now? This is just getting worse and worse for them, right? I bet there were some red faces, maybe even some steam coming out of their ears. Uh, Keep in mind, these Jews had believed what Jesus was saying at first. Jesus had already said earlier in this conversation, though in verse 24, he said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Pretty straightforward, harsh words for this crowd. This is a lot for them to take in. I can't imagine the looks and the body language as they were processing what Jesus was saying to them. Jesus was directly opposing what they had believed all of their lives. Now, what do you feel like the mood was at that point? They're, they're thinking, he, he just said we're going to die. And he also just called us sons of Satan. It's kind of that awkward moment in the conversation, right? As any good convicted sinner would do, They started calling Jesus' names. 
They uh, started saying he was possessed by a demon. They took up stones and planned to kill him right then and there because of the words that he spoke. Of course, Jesus wasn't killed at this time. It was not his appointed time to die, so he slipped out through the crowd to safety. But what I want you to catch from this entire interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees and these Jews here that believe was this group of people, these Pharisees, these Jews, had a borrowed faith. They had a borrowed faith. They believed that their salvation was a right passed down to them through their family. Abraham, in particular, in support of this right, they believed that their service, their right living, their good deeds kept them in the promise that God gave to their forefathers. Now, how many of us are guilty of believing the same thing? Maybe not on paper, but certainly in practice. Let's look at a couple of things we can learn from this interaction and hopefully apply to our own faith. First, I want you to know that your faith is not inherited from your family. Your faith is not inherited from your family. Romans 9, 8 says, So those who are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. Here Paul is speaking to a similar audience, just, had Je- just as Jesus had told these Jews in John 8 in no uncertain terms, Your father Abraham will not save you. So Paul tells the Romans. Jesus made it clear that they were placing their faith in the wrong father. In fact, they didn't even know the father that really counted in this situation. Paul clarifies here to the Romans a fallacy that we don't teach, but often ascribe to in practice. So how many times... Have you asked someone about their relationship with Christ or simply asked someone their testimony and received an answer something like this? Well, I grew up in church. My dad's a preacher. My grandpa was a preacher. My grandma played the organ. Um, You know, my my great uncle or whatever was a missionary. It's just all I've ever known, right? Unfortunately, some of these testimonies stop there. No account of a life-changing encounter with Jesus, no repentance, no accepting of a free gift of grace given to us by the blood of Christ simply, and I was born into it. So how could I not be saved, right? Well, I have a similar story as far as my heritage goes. My great-uncle was very well-known in the ABA. My other great-uncle was a missionary in Peru for many years. My grandpa, while not a pastor, was very diligent in sharing the gospel with others. I was literally in church nine months before I was born. All right? I stand here today before you a saved, redeemed, 100% child of God. Did any part of my family history or upbringing contribute to my salvation? Absolutely not. Other than my family pointing me towards Christ, they could do nothing else for me. It was not within their power. I guarantee you, if your mama could save you, you would have been saved a long time ago. Know this, that your family will not get you to heaven. Your family will not get you saved. Your family has no bearing on your relationship with Christ other than to point you in his direction. When we accept God's promise and believe on his son, Jesus 
Only then do we become part of his family, the kingdom of God. It works the same way for Abraham. You get asked this question a lot by the teenagers and even, even others. Well, how were people saved before Jesus came? The exact same way we were saved, that we are saved. Right? The Bible says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis 5, 15, 6, and repeated in Romans 4, 3 for emphasis. Abraham, his descendants and or his ancestors were not saved because of their bloodline. They were saved by the blood of Christ, period. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I don't see Abraham's name listed anywhere here. I don't see my Uncle Paul's name listed here. I don't see my grandma's name listed here, my dad's name, my mom's name. You get the point? I don't see anyone else listed here other than Jesus. There's no other name under heaven. A direct encounter with Jesus, one in which you place your faith and trust in him and what he accomplished on the cross is the only way for salvation. Your family will not get you there. Next, I want you to see your faith is not insured. Your faith is not insured by religious expression. So let's dig into that for a moment. First Samuel chapter 15, kind of the end of verse 22, says, Obedience is better than sacrifice a listening ear than the fat of rams. I guess you, just to give you a little backstory here, King Saul was instructed to destroy everything and everyone in their battle with the Amalekites. But King Saul chose to keep the best of their livestock, among other things. When the prophet Samuel questioned his actions, he played ignorant. I don't know what you're talking about. I did exactly what God told me. What was Samuel's response? Well, why did I hear the bleeding of sheep in the background here? What's, what's going on with that? Oh, oh, those. Those are for sacrifice to the Lord, right? I figured he'd want a sacrifice from the spoils of our great victory, right? Well, the prophet Samuel quickly clarifies that God wants us to obey him, not make our own decisions about what we think he will want, especially when they are in direct contradiction with his commands. But we would never do that, right? We would never live our life in whatever way we want with no regard to the instructions of God's word, but show up every Sunday and expect God to be on board with that. That's not us. We'd never do that, right? Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I know I use this passage in a lot of my sermons and even in a lot of my lessons with the teens, but I can't think of a more clearly stated passage about what it really means to be a Christian. And this passage is super challenging for me, as I know it is with many of us, but we are often like Saul. God, I know that you told me that everything I have is the least that I can do. That's what it says here, a living sacrifice. All that we have is our reasonable service. 
I know, God, that you told me everything I have is the least that I can give you, but you know, I'm pretty busy. I have a lot going on. I'm pretty important down here, if you didn't know. A lot of people depend on me. I figured you'd be pretty happy with me sacrificing maybe three to four hours a week to spend with you. Maybe to serve with you, to talk with the little children about you. And don't forget, I give you my money. It's my hard-earned money. You're welcome. Do you ever have that attitude? Now, don't get me wrong. All of these things are important. Going to church is important. Serving in the different ministries here are important. Sharing Jesus with the little ones is super important. Tithing, giving financially is important. God commands us to do these things, but these will not save you. What I want you to understand is clocking in on Sunday morning and clocking out Sunday afternoon, clocking in on Wednesday and clocking out after Awana or teens or adult services or whatever you may be involved in is not doing God any favors. It's not doing you any favors. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing, our relationship with Jesus Directly corresponding with our Heavenly Father is the most important. And out of that healthy relationship, our desire and priority to fellowship with other believers, to serve in ministries, to share the gospel, to give of our resources will flow out of that. It's a natural response. It's unnatural for a believer not to want to go to church not to want to talk to others about Jesus, not to want to give of what has been given to them so freely from God. But these actions by themselves will not and cannot save us, nor will any other outward expression of faith. Our worship will not save us. Our baptism will not save us. Taking the Lord's Supper will not save us. Singing a song, saying a prayer, being the most charitable person imaginable will not save us. The Pharisees built their lives on that premise, and Jesus called them whitewashed tombs who looked pretty shiny and like they had it all together on the outside, but on the inside they were rotten and full of dead men's bones. The outward expression of our faith does not ensure our faith. Only Jesus can do that. Lastly, just in case we haven't got the point driven home so far, we're going to drive it just a little bit further. Your faith only becomes your faith. It only becomes yours by trusting in Jesus Christ. John 10, 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I've always loved this verse because it tells me that my salvation is much more than just a ticket to heaven. If that weren't enough, Jesus becomes our shepherd. He takes care of us. He told us that he came to give us life, but not just life, life more abundantly. We know that in John 10, 10. But Romans 10, starting with verse 8, says, This is the word of faith that we preach, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. The core of our faith is belief. Not believing Jesus existed, 
but putting our trust in Him. We are to confess or agree with Christ that He is Lord and that He died for our sins and conquered death on our behalf. He won the battle that we could never win. Abraham didn't just believe that God was real. He trusted in His promise. He believed wholeheartedly that God would do what He said He would do. It was then counted to him as righteousness. This is Abraham's testimony. This is when he was saved. And this is the same way we are saved or can be saved if you aren't already. So I'll ask again, why are you here? There's two questions that I want you to consider as we wrap up tonight. First, do you own your faith? Or have you borrowed it for so long that you've started to believe that it's yours? A borrowed faith is no faith at all. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, not through grandma or grandpa, not through loving Christian parents, not through your pastor. Salvation is 100% personal. It's a decision only you can make. You must realize, understand, and accept that you are a sinner in need of saving. You must put your faith in the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, that paid that sin debt by dying on the cross and raising up three days later. You must believe, and only then will it be counted unto you as righteousness. Now, what am I going to do with my faith? Let's say I already own my faith. It's mine. I've trusted in the promise of life from my creator. Am I treating it like the treasure that it is? You know, salvation is a gift. A gift that came at an unimaginable price. The life of Jesus Christ. Don't disrespect that gift. I want you to consider a scenario for me just a moment. Let's imagine it's getting close to Christmas time, right? Maybe you have that like number one thing on your Christmas list that you've always wanted. Maybe that like dream gift that you never thought you could ever afford or no one would ever get for you, but it's there, right? So you imagine that Christmas morning comes, you rip open that wrapping paper and realize it's that gift, Right? I can't believe this is happening. I don't deserve it. You've really outdone yourself on this one. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. You're jumping up and down, screaming like a crazy person because you got this awesome gift that you've always wanted. But what happens next? You immediately jump up, gift in hand, run into your bedroom, into the back corner of your closet, drop it in the corner, and pile all the other junk that's in your closet on top of it, run back into the living room and forget it ever happened. How much sense does that make? Maybe next year around Christmas, you think about, I remember that cool gift I got last year? Yeah, it's still sitting in my closet, right where I put it. How many of us essentially do that or have done that as Christians? We accept Christ as our Savior, we may even be baptized, and an act of obedience or proclaiming that we have a new life in Christ, but our faith rarely comes up again. 
Maybe around Christmas, Easter, maybe a funeral, some other situation that kind of merits that. Something reminds you of that gift and you remember, oh yeah, I got one of those. But any other time, you forget all about it. I want you to think about today making your faith a priority right now. Shore up your relationship with Christ now. We are not promised one more second of this life. Don't wait until it's too late to realize that your faith was never yours in the first place. If you have a relationship with Christ, don't leave it in the corner of your heart just to collect dust buried under all the other things that occupy your time. Let it fill up your heart. Develop it, nurture it, feed it, help it grow. And just going to church is not the answer. Church never saved anyone. And hanging out for an hour once a week will not develop a healthy relationship. But I tell you this, if you have a relationship with Christ and you're walking with Christ, truly seeking his will in your life, you will go to church more than just once a week. You will seek other Christians to have fellowship with. God created us to live in community and commands us to do so just in case we may have forgotten. So I want you to make a decision now to follow Christ. Walk with him regardless of who else may be walking with you. It's, if it's just you and him, it's okay. Walk. Don't worry about others. Your faith is your own. It can only be your own. We're reminded in Matthew, when, or excuse me, when John, that when uh, Jesus was talking to Peter, and Peter asked Jesus, well, what, what about John? And what does Jesus respond with? What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Don't borrow your faith. Own it. Let's pray.